Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. Now today's case takes place in a small town of Agawam in Massachusetts which is near the western Connecticut border and there lived 24-year-old Lisa Ziegert who weeks prior to her abduction and murder told police that she believed she was being watched while she worked in a gift shop. But what exactly happened to Lisa, and were her gut instincts correct? Before we get into the case though, I just want to state that everything I talk about today is just information I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's case also involves mention of sexual assault and suicide, so if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the kidnapping and murder of Lisa Ziegert. Agawam, Massachusetts is a small town located near the western Connecticut border and it's a place where neighbours are friends and friends are family. It's a very close-knit community and this is where 24-year-old Lisa Ziegert lived. Now Lisa had grown up here and after graduating college she returned to her hometown to teach special needs students at the middle school and counsellor School counsellor Dick Cowles said that she was a very gifted teacher and she made sure that her students felt valued and her students always said that she'd help them with their problems and was always so nice to them. You know, she was the type of teacher that you wanted growing up, you know, the type of teacher that you're always going to remember as being one of the good ones. She just made school enjoyable. Her mother, Dee, also described her as a very special person who was bubbly, outgoing and just full of fun and full of life. Not only did Lisa teach, but she also worked at a gift shop called Brittany's Card and Gift Shop. And during the week, she would work here from 5pm till about 9pm. And this is exactly where Lisa was on Wednesday, April 15th, 1992. Lisa left the school at around 4.30pm and drove directly to the gift shop to start her shift. So once she was there at about 5.30pm, her sister Lynn stopped by to say hello and while she was there, Lisa was working on like a little sketch in a sketchbook and she was doing this for a friend. They chatted for a while and Lynn just recalled that their conversation was normal. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary nothing really seemed off everything everything was fine so after half an hour of uh, talking to lisa lynn said goodbye and left the shop at 6 p.m so now we fast forward to the next morning at 8:45 a.m and sophia maynard arrived to open up the shop as she usually did but she noticed lisa's car was still in the car park which did surprise her a little bit you know, it was a school day, Lisa should be at the school. And then as she started walking towards the shop, she then noticed that the shop's lights were still on and the open flag was out, which again seemed odd, but she just couldn't figure out why Lisa would still be in the shop. 
However, it then came to Sophia's mind that Easter weekend was coming up and they had been planning to blow up loads of balloons, so she figured that was probably why Lisa was still there. So Sophia proceeds to walk into the shop, but there's no sign of Lisa. She calls out for her several times, but no reply. The only thing she could hear was the music in the background that they kept on in the shop. She looked behind the counter and found all of Lisa's belongings, her drawings, pocketbook, car keys, everything. Everything was still there, but not Lisa. And this is when Sophia started to realise that something is wrong here. Her car was here, the shop was open, the lights were on, all of her belongings were here, but no Lisa. So Sophia did the right thing and she ran across the road to a local restaurant to alert the police immediately. The police arrived and entered the shop and they walked around until they came to the back storeroom and they found a scene that caused a lot of concern. The police found signs of a struggle in the back storeroom. There were several boxes that had been smashed and there was traces of blood found on those boxes and on some greeting cards outside of the room. They also noticed that it looked like there was like a dent on the bottom of the door. But apart from that, there was no physical evidence at the store. Lisa was just gone, leaving the police and the residents clueless as to her whereabouts. That same day, the Agawam Police Department, aided by the FBI and the Massachusetts State Police, launched a huge search in order to find Lisa. All Lisa's family could do was hope for the best, but fear for the worst. And sadly, just four days later, on the afternoon of 19th of April, Easter Sunday, Lisa's partially clothed body was found in a wooded area just off of Route 75 on the edge of town which was located about three miles from the star. Lisa was found with multiple stab wounds around her shoulders and her throat and after an examination by the county medical examiner it was later indicated that she had been sexually assaulted. Although there were several pieces of evidence found at the scene, unfortunately the murder weapon was not one of them. Never before in the history of Agawam had there been such an outpour of love and just such shared grief. I mean, at Lisa's wake there was more than 1,000 people there that stood for five hours in the spring rain just to pay tribute to her. You know, it really did show what kind of person Lisa was and how much of an impact she had on so many people. One of her students actually recalled that she was just a friend to everybody and they wished that there was more people in the world like her. Now, as her family and the residents of Agawam mourned the loss of Lisa, the authorities pressed on with an investigation to find out who did such a terrible thing. So there were now three critical phone tips that had come through which helped establish a time frame. So the first caller came from a person who had visited the store at 8.20pm and this person had actually made a purchase and it was time stamped on the receipt. 
But they said that nothing seemed unusual in the star or of Lisa's demeanour. Everything seemed fine. So we know that that person was definitely in the star at 8.20 and everything was fine. So the second person was also a customer in the star and they'd gone in at around 9pm and she found it open with the lights on but just like Sophia when she went in nobody was around. Now this customer said that she did hear some noises coming from the back room and more specifically banging noises and she waited for a moment but decided to turn around and leave when nobody came out which is frustrating I know you know and I can't imagine how many things go unreported because they aren't thought of as significant. I mean of course we know we have to look after ourselves but I think it is important that we look after other people too and you know I'd hope that if I was in a dangerous situation and somebody saw something I would hope that they would report it and you know you are allowed to call the police and report stuff you you never know how important it might actually be Um, but obviously everybody's going to react differently we don't know what was going through her mind she might have thought that it could have just been some teenagers fooling around. We don't really know, but, you know, if this customer had called the police and reported it, would Lisa still be alive? I mean, I don't know, it is a possibility. But then again, if this customer had gone to check in the back, could she have ended up with the same fate as Lisa? You know, again, it is a possibility. But this did suggest to police that Lisa was in the star at around 9pm and in the back room. This also gives a 40 minute window of when that attacker came into the star and took her. Further investigation revealed that she had been laying horizontal on the floor as, you know, I said before, there were two kick marks from her shoes at the bottom of the door. The third tip came from a woman who worked near the star and at 9.15pm that night she was on her way home and she stopped at a stop sign at the intersection of Route 75 and Adam Street and while she was stopped she observed a full-size Bronco or Blazer type vehicle pull off the road into a piece of property that led into the area where Lisa's body was later found. She said that there were someone in the front and believed that there were two people in the back, one female and one male. She saw the female's head go up and down a couple of times as the vehicle drove off into the woods. Now at the time this woman thought that it was just a carload of teenagers and she didn't think much of it so she carried on driving. The police took plaster moulds of the tyre tracks left at the murder scene and they were identified as Cooper tyres. The combination of tyres of the vehicle were so distinctive, detectives were able to comb through sales records of local dealerships and track down the driver of the vehicle. However, it turned out that he was at the scene with friends several days before the murder and ultimately he was ruled out. However, there was one name that kept coming up over and over again, and that would be Edward Bugatti Jr. Anyone you would ask around town would say that it was him. They were so sure of it. His father owned a restaurant across the street from where Lisa was taken, and her boyfriend was his roommate at the time. 
Now, the more time passed by, the more elaborate these rumours became. They said that there was this love triangle and Lisa had caught her boyfriend and Edward together and so Edward had to kill her. And it was said the police weren't doing anything about it because Edward's dad was police and they were trying to cover it up. And, you know, it all seems very scandalous, but it's only really part true. I mean, yes... Edward did live with Lisa's boyfriend, but there was never any proof of this relationship everybody was talking about. And Ed's dad did used to be in the police, but he wasn't anymore. He owned this restaurant now. So the police weren't trying to cover anything up. In fact, they weren't even doing him any favours, because even after Edward had passed a polygraph test, and even after his DNA didn't match the sample from Lisa's rape kit... The police wouldn't come out and tell the public this because apparently it was against their policy. So Edward's name has just been dragged through the mud and the police just left the town to speculate and kind of side-eye Edward. But whilst the town circled around Edward, the police had to start looking in other directions. They had to find someone that they could match to their DNA sample. And one by one, people who knew Lisa got ruled out. Friends, family, her boyfriend. And it becomes increasingly more clear to the police that as personal as this attack felt, it had to be someone Lisa didn't know, but possibly knew her. An unidentified man reportedly watched Lisa and other members of the Healthy Habits Fitness Centre whilst they worked out, and this happened shortly before Lisa's murder. Now, witnesses noted that he would watch her closely in a, quote, perverted fashion, end quote, and this man was described as Caucasian, in his 30s at the time, and around 5 foot 10 with a beer belly and wavy light brown hair. At the time, he wore work clothes and drove a red sports car, but it's not known if he has any connection to the case, but it is definitely worth mentioning. Now, also, in the weeks prior to Lisa's abduction and murder, she told people that she believed that she was being watched. She also asked several friends and relatives to visit her frequently at the store, as she didn't like to be alone there, and... You know, I definitely believe in gut instincts. Even if you can't see something, I definitely believe that the fear that she was feeling was obviously true. I mean, if you think if you're in a shop, and I've worked in shops before when it's dark and you can't see out because of the reflection of the inside, but people can still see in. And it can be quite daunting. And, you know, I do believe that she really did feel that fear. And so did the police. This led investigators to believe that her killer had been stalking her in the weeks up to her murder. So the police worked endlessly to try and work out who had done this awful crime. And they looked at lead after lead and tested every male that would give them a DNA sample. But... Eventually, the case kind of went cold, but every year another tip would come through and this would be looked into and a file would be made up about it to keep a record. 
However, it wasn't just the DNA evidence that police were looking into. So when Lisa's body was found, they noticed that the key to her apartment building was gone. So the theory was that the killer must have taken that key. So any time that they'd bring somebody in for an interview, they would be like, hey, can we just see your keys real quick? And then they'd compare it to a lock that they took of Lisa's door. So one day they get this tip about this local guy and they bring him in for an interview and they take his keys and the lead investigator passes them off to somebody to go and check them outside of the room. And then just a while later, this officer comes back, leans into the investigator's ear and whispers something that stops him dead in his tracks. It was a match. They had their guy and... Obviously, the heads must have been spinning and the adrenaline must have been like, you know, wow, they they finally got this guy. But, you know, they played it cool and asked him about the key. And this guy's just like, oh, yeah, this is just my apartment key. And the police are like, "Mm, yeah, okay, whatever you say. Why don't we go for a little visit? So they all got in the car and drive downtown and get to this man's apartment complex so they stand outside this man's door and everybody's jaw just drops when he puts in the key and opens this door to his apartment and as it would turn out his apartment complex was owned by the same management company that owned Lisa's and apparently sometimes they use the same key or at least they did back then which is absolutely crazy to think that this could be allowed so it did turn out to be his key you know as as bizarre as it seems it really did just seem to be a coincidence and they did let this man go more and more time would pass without answers and eventually lisa's family were counting the years and then even the decades without her and over time the case gets turned over to new and fresh eyes fresh perspectives And in 2016, the DA's office announced to everybody that they were holding a press conference because they had some big news. They announced that in December 2015, DNA found that the crime scene was sent to Parabon Nanolads, and it's a DNA forensic analyst kind of service. And the company created a composite picture using DNA phenotyping. And phenotyping is the process of like predicting physical appearance and ancestry from unidentified DNA evidence. So based on their analysis, they determined that Lisa's killer was likely fair-skinned with hazel or brown eyes and brown or black hair. And there are pictures online if you want to go and have a look at this composite sketch. Um... I remember when this kind of first came out, like the whole phenotyping thing, and it was exciting, you know, thinking, wow, you know, we're actually going to be able to see like what all these killers look like and maybe find them. But I mean, the kind of, the actual pictures themselves might not specifically look like the person, but it can definitely narrow down. For example, we now know that he's light-skinned and he probably has brown hair. So then it kind of, it does narrow it down so, okay, we can stop looking for these specific types of people. 
So in 2017, investigators looked into 11 suspects who had refused to give DNA samples over the years. And one of these men was 48-year-old Gary Edward Shara. And, you know, at the time of the murder, he was married with a young son and had no criminal record. So he wasn't exactly screaming like, I'm the murderer. He kind of just sat in the shadows. Nobody really suspected him. But he was one of these people that refused to give DNA samples. So he'd actually been a suspect since 1993 after his ex-wife had told her attorney that she believed he was involved in Lisa's murder. She said that he came home late that night and just would not tell her where he'd been and he had cuts all over his hands which he also couldn't explain. She also noticed that he seemed overly interested with the case like whenever it was mentioned on TV like he was there watching it like absolutely fixated on watching it and she had reportedly found some disturbing writings in his diary which led her to believe that he was responsible and you know after this she fled with their son and hid with relatives because she was afraid of him but you know unfortunately because she was known as an alcoholic her tip wasn't really taken seriously at the time. So in September, a state trooper went to Gary's apartment with a court order, and this was ordering him to provide a DNA sample. But when they knocked on his door, they were met with his roommate, who told them that he wasn't home at the time. So the trooper gave his roommate a business card and told him to have Gary contact him. But when Gary returned to his house, his roommate told him about this visit, and Gary kind of freaked out a little bit and he wrote three documents and left them at his girlfriend's house and vanished. He, he he left the house. So later that day, Gary's girlfriend gets home to find him gone and found these letters. She walked into the police station and immediately handed over these documents. Now, obviously the police were extremely shocked. So these documents were a confession to Lisa's murder, along with a last will and testament and a brief apology letter to her family. Now, you can actually find snippets of these letters online, but I'm just going to read out a few bits from his confession to his girlfriend. Okay, so, quote, I have been dreading the day I'd need to write this letter from as long as I can remember. First off, I love you. I hope you never doubt that. Now the hard part. You're going to find out some awful things about me today and they will tell you that I abducted and murdered a young woman approximately 25 years ago. It is true, all of it. I had no intention of killing her when I grabbed her but events spun out of my control and in the eyes of the law it is all the same. I had never regretted anything so much. I was young and headstrong and foolish. End quote. Then he goes on to say that, quote, I never did anything of that, of the like again. I hated what happened. I despise myself. I thought about turning myself in hundreds of times, but over the years, but I am truly a coward. But today it will end. I will end my own life and face the music as it were. I always knew it would catch up with me and now it has, end quote. 
so obviously the police are just like what the fuck like 25 years and this man's just written a confession and the thing that gets me about this is the fact that he hadn't done anything like this ever again it's absolutely crazy to think that people can do this sort of thing once and then just blend back into society I don't really understand I don't understand it but he's obviously done this absolutely dreadful horrific thing and then just gone on to live his life obviously full of you know well regret as he's saying um but yeah so now it's literally just a race against time to try and find Gary because from these notes it's a very good chance that he might take his own life So they were actually able to trace him to a hospital in Connecticut where police find his car parked in the car park with yet another letter. And this note said, quote, To whomever finds my body, I apologise for the psychological trauma incurred. Call Mass State Police. Thank you. End quote. But the thing is... There was no body to be found. The car was checked over and there was no Gary. You know, the police then decided to check inside the hospital where they found Gary in the ER. He had checked himself in after taking a bunch of pills because he was too scared to die. And, you know, in that moment when he took them pills and was scared, I hope he thought of Lisa and how scared Lisa must have been. You know, Lisa didn't get a choice of whether she lived or died. So ultimately, Gary's DNA was then matched to the evidence at the crime scene and on September 16th, he was arrested at the hospital and charged with murder, aggravated rape and kidnapping. On September 25th, 2019, Gary unexpectedly pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in this case. The rape and kidnapping charges were dropped as a result and he admitted in the court for being responsible of her death. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and in his confessions he stated that he had been quote fascinated end quote with abduction and bondage from an early age and on the day of the murder he quote let himself do something terrible end quote. He claimed that he had not intended on killing her when he abducted her, like he said in the letters. Although he never mentioned it in his confession, police believe that he became obsessed with Lisa after he bought a music box from the store. A music box that he later gave to his then-wife. Lisa's family and the town of Agawam will never truly forget the pain of losing such a beautiful, young and smart woman. But after all those years, Lisa's killer has finally got put behind bars and she eventually got the justice that she deserved. And that does conclude today's episode, so thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And... It really is one of them cases that people never think will get solved, but decades later, science improves, techniques improve, and thankfully in this case, they managed to find the guy who did this, and I honestly think that is amazing that they never gave up on Lisa, and like I've just said, she did finally get the justice that she deserved. 
So that is everything from me today. So thank you very much for listening. And if you want some more true crime, you can head over to the Prime for Crime TikTok where I post small clippets of clippets, clips of um, cases daily. And it's nice to interact with you, see what you like and see what you're not. And I'm always open to suggestions on cases. Um, So yeah, that's me for now. And I will see you next week. See you later.